So today we're going to give an introduction to Genesis and to the first 11 chapters to kind of talk about what are we reading here, to look at what is the storyline, and try to put some of these pieces together that, you know, when we do read it and study it, uh, that we can have a better grasp of what's going on. Um, because, as I've said before, it's important that we read our Bible, but it's more important, or it's just as important that we know how to read it so we can understand what we are reading. So we're going to begin today just on our paper talking about the book of Genesis and the first 11 chapters. Uh, the name Genesis is a Greek word that means beginnings. Uh, the Hebrew phrase is taken from the first phrases in the Bible that says, in the beginning. And when we talk about beginnings, Genesis is certainly a fitting theme for a book of beginnings. In the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of the world and creation. We see the beginning of human life, man and woman. We see the beginning of marriage and family within that context of how God designed man and woman and how he designed family. We see the beginning of sin. We see sin enter into the world. Uh, we see the beginning of redemption. Along with sin coming into the world, God gives a promise of redemption. So we see the beginning of redemption. Also, we see in Genesis, we see the beginning of religious worship. We see Cain and Abel bringing offerings and sacrifices unto God. Uh, we see the beginnings of human civilization. We see human uh, innovation, and we see cities being formed, and nations building, and languages. We see the beginning of the nation of Israel, and the call of Abraham, and the beginning of this family that is going to be so important that we're going to talk to. So Genesis tells us the beginnings of basically almost everything except one thing. Genesis doesn't tell us the beginning of God. Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created. Genesis doesn't seek to explain God. Genesis doesn't seek to uh, defend God or prove his existence. It doesn't tell us about God's beginning. If God had a beginning, what does all of that look like? So it tells us the beginnings of everything in this world except God himself. I find that interesting because in the context of Israel writing this, it's just assumed that God is there, that He is active, that He is the Creator, that He is the Savior, that He is the Redeemer. So Genesis, looking at its major themes, Genesis becomes what I like to call the seed book of the rest of the Bible. That means in Genesis contains the seeds that are going to grow all throughout the rest of Scripture. Not just in the Old Testament but in the New Testament with Jesus, all the way leading up to the book of Revelation. And so it's amazing that when you take, you know, we just finished up Revelation, and then when you look at Revelation compared to Genesis, it's amazing the comparisons between the two. And I didn't put this on our paper, but a quick search, or I have this if you want it. But Genesis, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, you have a new heaven and a new earth that is come down from heaven. In Genesis, you have Eden. You have the river that flows out of Eden, and you have the tree of life. But Eden and the waters that flowed out and, and the tree of life, when man sinned, man was exiled from the garden. And it was 
kept the way of the tree of life where man couldn't get to it. But then in Revelation, we have the new Jerusalem with rivers flowing out of the temple in the new Jerusalem. And we have the tree of life, which is now opened in the book of Revelation. We have the bridegroom Adam and the bride Eve in the book of Genesis. In the book of Revelation, we have the bride, the church, and the bridegroom Christ. In Genesis, we are introduced to this idea of the serpent who goes out to deceive. In the book of Revelation, the serpent has become a great dragon going out to deceive the nations, but yet the serpent in Genesis meets his demise and destruction in the book of Revelation when he's thrown into the bottomless pit and he's thrown into uh, the lake of fire. In Genesis, we see the curse established. In Revelation, we see the curse abolished. In Genesis, death enters. In Revelation, death is destroyed. In Genesis, we see Babylon being built up to become this symbol of all that is wrong with the human governments of the world. In Revelation, we see Babylon destroyed. In Genesis, we have the Redeemer that is promised. And in Revelation, we have the Redeemer that is reigning. So you see how what's in Genesis is so important to the whole story of redemption and to the rest of the Bible. So what begins in Genesis ends in Revelation, but it is all one cohesive story that is being told that centers upon redemption. Which brings us to the purpose of Genesis. The purpose of the book of Genesis is to tell us how God chose to intervene in the midst of human sinfulness. Man sinned, Adam fell, sin and death entered into the world. So God chooses to intervene in the midst of that sin by choosing and electing a man named Abraham. Who a great family would come out of Abraham, who a great nation would come out of Abraham, who God would make covenant with. And through this man, through this family, through this covenant would ultimately come redemption that would solve the problem of sin. And this covenant that leads to redemption comes through a promised offspring of Abraham, a promised seed of Abraham, which would be Jesus himself. So the covenant that God made with Abraham is the foundation that we're going to see that's established in Genesis. The covenant in Genesis chapter 12 is the major foundational covenant for the nation of Israel, for their identity, for their theology, and for their purpose. So it's of great significance, this purpose of the book of Genesis, that ultimately tells us God's story, but it tells us God's story through Abraham's story, and Isaac's story, and Jacob's story, and Joseph's story, and then later on in Moses' story. And all of, all of these individual narratives and tales are part of a greater picture of salvation that God is working out. So this purpose of Genesis, of how God works through this family to bring redemption, is worked out in, in a few different ways here. First of all, it's worked out uh, as the Scripture introducing who this God of Israel is, who this covenant Yahweh God is, how He is the sovereign creator of the world, how He works His affairs through human beings. 
how he is distinct and separate from what the other nations thought were gods. How he's a different God, he's a different creator, he's a different redeemer. So Genesis introduces God to the world. Israel's God. We also see in Genesis the role of people in God's newly created world in the image of God. As we said a few weeks ago, there are many other creation stories that we find from Babylon and Mesopotamia. And many of those human beings are an afterthought. In God's plan, human beings are central. They are made in His image. They are given dominion to rule and to reign. It is God working through His creation, His plans and purposes on the earth. So the role of people. Number three, Genesis established that God has a sovereign plan for history. He has a sovereign plan. And He works through man, even though man continues to fail Him. But yet, God would ultimately bring redemption. Number four, Genesis proves the faithfulness of God by preserving His covenant. We find this when we read the narrative stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They try to mess it up all the time. But God is greater. He makes an unconditional covenant. He protects the covenant. He protects the offspring. He protects the seed. He protects the nation. And He does that all throughout the Old Testament in order to bring about Jesus. Number five, Genesis seeks to explain how Israel became established and organized as a nation. So that's your major theme, how God chooses to work through this nation to bring about salvation and redemption from the problem of sin. Now, as you're reading Genesis and going throughout the rest of Genesis, there are several what is called subplots to Notice as you're reading, the first subplot that we have here is the establishment of two major covenants in the book of Genesis. That is the covenant of Noah that God makes uh, with the world through Noah, where he says that he would never uh, destroy all life off of the earth again. And he sets his bow in the, uh, in the sky as a sign that he would never flood the earth Again, And then the second is that covenant with Abraham that we just mentioned, who promises the gift of offspring specifically one specific offspring, Jesus, and the promise of a promised land. So we see land, as we talked about last week, we see land playing a major part in the Old Testament stories as we read through the book or the books of the Old Testament. Uh, another subplot is this idea of this holy war between the seeds. In Genesis 3.15, uh, when Jesus is speaking, he speaks to Adam and then to Eve and to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And you can chase the story all the way down through the narratives that you have this godly lineage, this godly line, this godly seed, and this ungodly lineage, and or this ungodly lineage, and ungodly seed, and ungodly line. And you see this played out uh, in many different ways. Uh, you see Cain and Abel, you see Ishmael and Isaac, you see Esau and Jacob. In these narratives, a lot of time it's the elder that uh, persecutes the younger because the younger is the one that was actually chosen by God. That God didn't necessarily choose the, the eldest or the oldest. He chooses the younger. and Sometimes he chooses the, the weaker as well to carry out his plans. Um, and then number four, we see another small, and, and again, this is, 
Israel's history, so it meant a lot to them. But we see this narrative of Judah's ascension above his brothers. Now, why is that important? Why in this family drama do we see Judah rising to the top? And when Judah rises to the top, his father blesses him and says that the sepulcher would never depart from Judah because Judah was one of the sons of, of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes. And Judah sins above his brothers and he gets a blessing from his father that the sepulcher would not depart from him. And throughout all that working, it's God's sovereignty working because out of Judah would come Jesus. And even in Genesis, we see the seed to the Davidic covenant because David would come through the line of Judah. We see the Davidic kingdom even in seed form here in the book of Genesis. So there's so much in here that is expounded upon later in the scripture. And then we find anticipation of the next chapters. We find you know, Egypt mentioned in the lineage and genealogies of Genesis chapter 10. Uh, we see the beginnings of Babylon with the Tower um, of Babel. And then we see the surrounding nations that Israel would deal with. We see them crop up. And, and so a lot of this is in seed form that anticipates this larger theme of God working through this family and this nation. So that's a little bit of your major purposes of why we have the book of Genesis and what it's about. Now, as we look at the structure of Genesis, um, I won't take a lot of time to cover this, but there's two major divisions in Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 and 12 through 50. Um, Pre-patriarch history before Abraham comes in Genesis 1 through 11, and then in Genesis 12 through 50, we have the history of the patriarchs. In Genesis 1 through 11, there are four major events. There's creation, fall, flood, and then the tower of Babel, which will spread the nations, confound the languages. Um, in that is the origin of the universe, if you will, uh, and the creation of mankind, uh, the fall of Adam and the rapid growth of sin. We see sin abound exponentially till it gets to the point where sin and violence is covering the whole world and it's the imagination of every heart of every person and there's violence everywhere. And so we see sin come to this crescendo which leads to the devastation of the flood and the repopulation of the world, uh, which is also another theme in Genesis. We find new beginnings. We find in the beginning, God took the deep, dark, chaotic waters, and then he separated the waters, and he brought forth creation, and he created man, and put him in a garden, and told him to be fruitful and multiply, and he was supposed to uh, have dominion and rule in God's image, and then he fell and violence happened. So what happens? God takes his creation where he had divided the waters and he brings the waters back together under Noah's flood. And now there's chaos and, and destruction. And what does God do? The, the flood waters uh, descend and then there's Noah and his family. What does he tell Noah? The same commission as, as Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This was a new beginning as well. Uh, but that didn't go too well either. <laughs> that leads to all the people at the Tower of Babel you know, trying to reach heaven and be God themselves. So God scatters them again and calls Abraham. He says, I'm going to make a new nation of you. So we have another beginning in Genesis. So just in the first 12 chapters, we have three different beginnings uh, that we see there of kind of a, a restart of things. First with Adam, then with Noah, and now with Abraham. So we see these new beginnings. In chapters 12 through 50, there are four major characters. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and 
Joseph. And chapters 12 through 50 are narrative. It's a nice story that you can read about all of these people and their families and things they go through, their successes and their failures and their strengths and their weaknesses, how they had moments of faith, how they had moments of doubt, but ultimately how they were the beginnings of the people of God. Uh, some of this is the call, the covenant, and the life of Abraham, and then the promised son Isaac and Jacob, and the birth of a nation in chapters 25 through 36. And then the journeyings of Joseph that lead him to Egypt. And then that's where Genesis ends with Israel in Egypt. And then you pick up in Exodus, and they are slaves in, in Egypt. So the first 12 chapters... Uh, cover about 1,900 years of history, roughly 2,000 years of history between Adam and Abraham. And then from Abraham to Joseph is probably about 300 years. So there's a, there's, you know, Genesis is, uh, covers a, a pretty good period of time there. Um, Genesis is also uh, divided up by a phrase in Genesis. And I've got them listed for you here but it can be divided up into, into a certain phrase. And that phrase is, this is the account of, and then it will list something. And there are these divisions where it says, this is the account of, that's the Hebrew word uh, toledoth, and so that's kind of divided between there. But we have the, gen the account or the generations of heaven and earth, the account or the generations of Adam in chapter 5, and Noah chapter 6, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 10. Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Um, all of this is re-emphasizing that Genesis is the beginning of Israel's story. And that's why, you know, we look in the Old Testament sometimes, and probably one of the worst readings that we have in the Old Testament is reading genealogies. None of us, you know, want to read genealogies. We might, we might like our own genealogy, you know, we've probably all at one point gone down that road, but reading genealogies of people thousands of years is seen, as most people, as the most boring part of the Bible. But for Israel, it was very important to them. Their genealogies establishes who they are as a people. Take the, um, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, is Chronicles. Chronicles begins with Adam. It traces and, and it gives us genealogy. And it's establishing their identity as the people of God. Especially even more so as they would go into Babylonian captivity and they would find themselves, uh, so whether they're you know, coming out of Egypt, whether they're in the promised land, whether they're in Babylon, this writing and these genealogies gives them a continual sense of identity and a continual sense of who they are, their history, their calling, and their purpose. So the Genesis story is the story of Israel within the context of the story of God. Now as we go to the back of your paper, we're going to introduce the first 11 chapters. So the whole book of the Bible again is divided, or the whole book of Genesis divided into two sections. I want to focus on section 1 through 11. This is what I call a wide view. Because a wide view begins with the creation of the world, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, the growth of nations and cities, the flood, all of this is a wide view. And then in chapter 12, we narrow to talk about one person, 
and one family. But for now, we're talking about a lot of families as it deals with the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, there's a lot of familiar stories. I mean, we all, you know, the first thing probably all of our children learn, I know mine did, when they got their children's Bible, is they read the story of creation. You know, in the six days of creation and God resting on the seventh day and then, you know, Adam and Eve with their fig leaves in the garden hiding behind trees and the little snake that comes up, you know, behind Eve in the tree. All, all these, I just see all these pictures of children's books that I had when I was growing up in children's church and, and Sunday school. And then, uh, you know, going on from that, you had the flood of Noah and you got this little boat, you know, that Noah built and all the archie archie, all the animals come in two by two and, you know, Noah saves all the animals while everybody else drowns around them. And, you know, and then you've got this just continuing on with these stories that, you know, are, are precious to us, that we remember, that we know. But yet, when we read them as grown-ups, we find out there's questions that need to be answered. Questions that need to be answered. Um, I had a buddy of mine who's a, uh, a pastor. His son came up to him one day, and they had been talking about, Adam and Eve in the garden, and his son came up to him and he says, Dad, snakes can't talk. <laughs> and Dad's like, oh boy, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just one of these things, so there's questions we have to deal with. What is up with the flood? Why are we six chapters into the Bible and everybody's, and everybody's dead except one family? You know, so there's questions that we deal with that we deal with as adults that we don't deal with with children. And a lot of it has to do with trying to establish what we're reading, why was it written, what's the intended purpose of the writing, and what are we to learn from it. So while these stories in Genesis 1-11 through are some of the most familiar stories of the Bible, they're also some of the most contentious. They're some of the most contentious when it comes to the critics of Christianity and the Bible. They like to attack the first 11 chapters Genesis. They're, they're contentious because uh, of, of the setting that they were in, and they're contentious because of some of the ideas that are presented in them. So they're some of the most argued. So then we get into questions. And the questions we ask in Genesis is we ask things like, okay, is this literal or is this a story? Is it symbolic? Is it, was there seven literal days of creation? And if there were seven literal days, were they literal 24-hour days? Were they days of many, many, many years? What is going on in creation? You know, we'll talk about it next week. I'm going to show you two pictures next week. I'm going to show you the picture of our universe and our earth and our world. And then show you the picture of how Genesis describes our earth and our world. And you'll be shocked at these two pictures. So why are these two pictures so different when we look at these things? We also ask other questions in like, why is there a talking snake? Or where does a talking snake come from? We ask questions like, where did Cain get his wife? You know, did Adam have a belly button? You know, we, we want to ask all of these questions when it comes to Genesis because these things are interesting to us. And the views range from what I call extreme fundamental views to uh, extreme critical views of these stories in the book of Genesis. And as I said last week, and I've, I live by, I, I try not to live by either extreme. I think you're, you're getting off course when you go by either extreme. 
You know, I think you find what is the, the truth in the middle. Either side of the cross is a thief. Sometimes we find Jesus right in the midst of these extremes. That's what we find with Genesis. We find this extreme. So how has Genesis been looked at in the past? Is it literal history? Is it myth or fairy tale? What are ways that Genesis has been looked at by people in the past? There's five views here of how people view Genesis 1. First of all, these first two are what I would call literalist. First of all, Genesis has been viewed scientifically. I remember being in Bible college and I had to take uh, creation science where people like Ken Ham and all of that, you know, dedicate their lives to matching the Bible with science and everything lines up perfectly between science and the Bible. So you have people within Christianity that have spent their life harmonizing Christian, uh, the Christian story and science. Then you have those that are saying the science we have now and the Bible are not compatible and we have to deal with those issues. But those who look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, especially more with creation other than you know, the other stories in Genesis, is that scientifically the events of the creation of the world are literal and scientific in its descriptions. That means Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are literally meant to convey how the world, how the universe, how the earth, how people came into being, and this is how it happened. Uh, they're created exactly in the way the Bible says, in a literal 24-hour, seven-day period. And that's how, you know, scientific literalists look at the Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The second way is historical. Historical is would kind of go along with, if you were watching a movie, if there was a video camera there at creation... If there was a video camera there the, at Adam and Eve, and there was a video creation, there was a video there at Noah, and there was a video there at the Tower of Babel, you know, everything would be exactly as it happened. So your historical would be every person, every story, every genealogy, 100% historically accurate, recorded just as it happened. So therefore, I put on here: if the Bible says a snake talked, then a snake talked. Okay, and that and that settles it. You know, if the Bible says it, that settles it. The snake talked. So you know, if I were to ask my parents. Did a snake really talk? And they're like, did the Bible say a snake talk? Well, if the Bible says a snake talk, then a snake talk. And that would be the end of the story, you know, right there. Regardless, I've never seen a snake talk, and I never get close enough to a snake to see if he talked. Okay, so I couldn't tell you if he does or not, you know, because that's, snakes aren't my thing. Uh, you know, but that, that, that is your literal approach. And, you know, the majority of evangelical Christianity adheres to some form of a literal interpretation of these first chapters. Uh, number three is uh, seeing the Bible more, and I, instead of poetical, I could have put you know more literary there. I could have put more literary. Um, but your more literary poetical way is saying that these stories reveal absolute truth, that there's absolute truth in the creation story. There's absolute truth in the Adam and Eve story. There's absolute truth in the flood. There's absolute truth in genealogies. There's absolute truth in the Tower of, ba of, of Babel. And, but yet these truths are revealed not necessarily in a video camera type way, but in a way that is easy to be understood within the ancient world that they were living in and giving it a poetic bent to convey God's message. You know, and you see... Genesis 1, to me, is some of the most beautiful literature that, that there's ever been written. I mean, just, just the way it flows, just 
And we'll talk about it in, in detail next week as we see, you know, how over and over again, and God said, let there be. And, then, and it was, or and it was so. And God saw that it was good. And how, how the days parallel one another in, in, in poetic form, I mean. And then how, you know, God rests on the seventh day, you know, pointing back to even the Sabbath rest that Israel has established in, in the Old Testament. And even, even how the story of Adam and Eve in the garden even speaks to the greater story of Israel. I mean, think about this. God creates man out of the dust of the, of the ground. He, he takes and he creates man and woman, brand new. He puts them in a promised, he puts them in a garden that is beautiful and lush. He gives them, he gives them instruction. He gives them command, do not eat of this tree. Well, they disobey the command. When they disobey the command... They're brought under condemnation and they're cast out of the garden. Think about Israel's story. Israel took Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and formed a new nation out of him. Placed this nation into a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Gave them commandments, the law. They ultimately broke those commandments, the law. And because they broke the law, they were exiled from the promised land. You see this picture. I mean, that's... I mean, I don't think that's by accident. I mean, I think that's, that's something beyond, you know, just, just here's what happened. It's telling us this story, the, the beginning of Adam and Eve, and then the, where, where, where the, the waters above the earth and the waters below the earth were separated. And then a few chapters later, the waters come up and the waters come down, covering the whole world again. I mean, it's telling us this story. It's conveying us this message. And it does it so in beautiful literary terms. So, but it's teaching us truth by these events that happen. And then in number four, you're getting more to the critical side, which critics of the Bible would look more at these stories as these are purely mythological stories. Creation, made-up story. Adam and Eve, made-up story. Flood, made-up story. All these are made-up stories. And they copy other stories that were in the ancient Near East at that time. Now, are there other accounts of creation by other nations? Yes, there are other accounts. Are they exact? Are they like the creation account in Genesis 1? No, they're very different. They're very different. Are there other accounts of the flood? There are many accounts from many other nations about the flood. Are there Noah-type heroes in the other flood stories? Yes, they are. There are similarities. Are those stories older than the story that we have here in the Bible? Yes, they are older. So your critics will look at that and they will say, well, that's proof that this is just a made-up story just like all the other stories that there are. But is that true? Should we just cast these aside as meaningless just like every other ancient literature? I think most of us would say absolutely not that there is that what we have is divinely inspired, divinely given, and teaches us a divine message, which brings to number five theological. That's my favorite theological. It's these chapters, first and foremost, are not teaching us if Adam had a belly button, or do snakes talk, or where did Cain get his wife, or are these seven 24 hour days. 
that first and foremost, these accounts in Genesis 1-11 through teach us eternal truths about God. They teach us eternal truths about man and mankind and our human nature bent on sin and disobedience and the consequences of our sin. It teaches us about God's relationship with man. When Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices before God and one's accepted and one's not, it's teaching us about appropriate sacrifices, that, a theme that, again, follows through the whole of the Bible. So these first chapters teach us about God, man, and God's relationship with man and sin as understood by ancient Israel and revealed by God. They teach us deep theological truths. But what we do, because we're humans and we have our opinions, and by nature we like to argue and prove that we are right, we like to focus more on these other questions than we do about learning the truth that is presented about God and ourselves and what do we do with that truth. So that's what we're going to focus on, is the truths that are revealed. So the advice for reading Genesis 1-11 through well is, first of all, instead of asking you know, these questions about, uh, are these seven literal days, was Adam a real person, did he have a belly button, did snakes talk, where did Cain get his wife, the questions we should ask are, first of all, number one, what is this telling and teaching us about God, humanity, and life? And what purpose did this literature serve Israel? What would these writings, how would they serve Israel? What did they speak to them? So as I skip an important line here, but as theological history, and that's what I like to call this, I took that phrase from one of the commentaries. I loved it. Theological history. That's what we're learning here. Theological history is a narrative written about past historical people and events. Was creation a historical event? Well, obviously so, because we have creation all around us. You know, do we have past historical people? Noah, Adam, Shem, Ham, Japheth, all these. Yeah, I believe those are absolute real people. Was there a flood? Yes, I believe there was a flood. Do I have all the answers to all the details about a flood? Well, I don't have all the details, but I do believe that there was the event of the flood. Do I believe that flood teaches us? I believe that flood absolutely teaches us. So narrative, theological history, is a narrative written about historical people and events. But at times can also use highly figurative language in its descriptions in order to teach important theological messages. It's like last week when I told you that Alexa, you know, you know she, when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and she's like, that's kind of gross, you know. What body does God look like that God would come down and perform CPR into dust, you know? You know, what, I mean, God, how does all that work, you know? God's hands, he formed man. The big hands come down, literal hands. Maybe. Maybe not. Does that take away the fact that God's the creator of life and gave man life? Absolutely not. It's not take that away at all. But it's in this way that we can see, we can imagine with our eyes. 
that we can relate to as God forming man, that we are not just happenstance, that God had a part in our own very being. That we were created by Him. And it conveys in a literal, in, in, in a literary way, a poetic way that, that speaks to us and does something to the inside of us. That's the importance of this literature. And it teaches important theological messages. So that's how... I will approach these stories when we get into them. A narrative written about past historical people and events, but at times can be highly figurative language in its descriptions in order to teach important theological messages. So, and again, I want to read the Bible like an adult, that we can attack these questions, but yet get beyond the arguments and get to what the Scripture is actually saying to us. So, uh, to get a full grasp on Genesis 1 through 11, we must read Genesis number one in its own world. We do must understand that this is a very ancient book. And, it's, and the worldview of the people who wrote the Pentateuch and the worldview of the people living in these first 11 chapters is totally different than any way we think or perceive the world today. And that's okay because that's how God chose to give us His Word. So I say we need like to read this. We need to read this through ancient eyes to see what's going on. And then we must read it as literature and in the way the writer intended for it to be. You know, the writer of Genesis one probably didn't intend to write a science book. He was writing about God. So we must welcome that and not let that become an issue, but really try to grasp how the writer's writing and what he's intending to do with the writing. And then we must read it as God's story, because the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God's story of redemption. Um, having said that, I have done here, we must not totally empty Genesis 1.11 of its historical content, because there's people that would do that. You know, We should not empty of its historical content, because it is history, and it is real people and places and things. But we also not need to get bogged down in the details or the arguments of the stories, but emphasize the core of what the Scripture is trying to teach to its original audience as well as us today. And then one quote says, after reading Genesis as if we were a part of the original audience, we should then read the book in the full knowledge of the redemptive history that follows, particularly the death and the resurrection of Christ, because that is where Genesis is leading us. It's leading us to Jesus. And proving the seven days were seven literal 24-hour days, but missing Jesus is to miss the whole point. It's to miss the whole point. So that's just some encouragement as when we approach and when we read this first 11 chapters as part of God's unfolding story that, that conveys truth to us in the ways that ancients would convey truth to us. Uh, now to finish up this last part, some of the theological themes of Genesis 1 through 11. Um, obviously, the problem is sin. The solution is redemption. And God has set that redemption into motion. So the, there's four major theological themes that stand out in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, God as sovereign creator of the universe and of mankind. That God is responsible for all of this for creation and for you and I, it didn't just haphazardly come into being. It was by design. You and I are by design. Number two, the entrance of sin into the world that radically alters creation. 
How sin brings death and destruction. That's the second major theme. The third major theme is God's judgment meets human's sin in each story. So we not, not just see sin, but we see God's response to sin. And ultimately that response comes in the form of you know, banishment from the garden. That judgment comes in the form of a worldwide flood. That judgment comes in the form of confounding the languages and spreading the, the people all over the world. And then number four, that God sustains both creation and humans by His preserving grace. That even in the midst of God's judgment, He has not cast us out. He has given grace to us. And He's preserving His promises by His grace. So Genesis 1-11, through I like to say, is setting up the problem. It's setting up the problem that God created a good and perfect world that this good and perfect world was corrupted by man's sin. Man left to his own devices is just going to sin more and more and more until it gets out of control. Even when God wipes the slate clean with a flood. You know, if the flood was to get rid of all the sin, it didn't work too good because immediately after Noah got off the boat, he started sinning again. And then we see sin escalating again. So we see the repeated problem of sin and rebellion and disobedience. So wiping everybody off the face of the earth is not the answer. Man's always going to rise up in his pride and try to become our own gods. So we're left at the end of Genesis chapter 11 with the problem. We have a problem. Continual sin, continual disobedience, continual rebellion. So Genesis 1-11 through sets up the problem. And we'll look more fully at that next week. Genesis chapter 12 begins the solution of the problem. Uh.